Luke 10, beginning in verse 21, let's hear God's word. In that same hour, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, one basic question this morning, what makes Jesus rejoice? What gives Jesus joy? Uh, the Gospels actually have a great deal to tell us about the emotional experience of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we read about Jesus' uh, compassion for needy sinners. We, we read about Jesus' anger toward the hard-hearted Pharisees, and even at times his own disciples when they hindered the children from coming to him. We read about the, the love of Jesus and the way Jesus wept over the unbelief of the people of Jerusalem. But only once in all four Gospels do we read about the joy of Jesus. That we, that we read that Jesus rejoiced. I don't think that's because uh, Jesus lacked joy. Jesus possessed the Spirit in abundance and therefore Jesus possessed the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. He was an abundantly joyful man. But I think Luke draws our attention here to Jesus' joy on this one occasion to focus our attention on it. What is it that gives Jesus joy? <laughs> and according to Luke chapter 10, it's missions. It's the way that God the Father is accomplishing His sovereign and gracious will through, through the work of missions. Uh, the disciples in this passage have returned from the mission that Jesus sent them out on into the towns and villages. And their mission was to proclaim the kingdom of God and the offer of peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. And they return rejoicing. And Jesus joins in the rejoicing, seeing Satan fall down from heaven like lightning through their ministry. And now Jesus, we read, in that same hour, rejoiced. This passage, it's, it's, it's joy, joy, joy. It's, it's just filled with joy. And so I want us to see what makes Jesus rejoice in particular. And I want us to understand that as followers of Jesus, we can have that same joy when we share Jesus' perspective on missions. Now, as is often the case, Jesus doesn't have the same perspective as us, does he? 
And so this morning, one of the things we, our goal really is to see how Jesus understood missions and see that we as his followers can share in his joy as the Father's will is accomplished through missions. So here's the first thing, and, and hear me out. The first reason Jesus rejoiced is because through missions, God the Father deliberately discriminates. Now, I, I know the idea of God d- deliberately discriminating is, is sure to ruffle the feathers of some, How could God discriminate? And Jared, how can you tell me that Jesus would rejoice in something like that? Look at verse 21 with me. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, if we want to understand why Jesus rejoices in the Father's discriminating acts, then then we need to really focus on this verse and make sure we understand it. To be clear and be sure, discrimination is wrong when discrimination is done for the wrong reasons. Discrimination is wrong when we we discriminate, discriminate against someone for their for their, uh, for their sex or their race or their uh, ethnicity. God hates that kind of discrimination, but that's not the kind of discrimination we're reading about here in this verse. Notice there are two groups mentioned here, the wise and understanding and little children. And, and in order to understand God's deliberate discrimination then we need to understand who those two groups are. So let's, let's start with the wise and understanding. And if you want to put a name to it, these are, these are, these are self-sufficient, know-it-alls, I-don't-need-God kind of folks. And we have an example of the wise and understanding earlier in Luke chapter 10. If you look back to verses 13 and 15, look down at those verses with me. It's an announcement of woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now, the language of being exalted to heaven and brought down to Hades, is taken from Isaiah chapter 14, when Isaiah is talking about Babylon. When Babylon arrogantly exalted herself, Babylon said things like, I I will be like God. I will exalt myself. I will trample over the nations. I will do as I please. I, I don't need the God of Israel. And in Isaiah 14, God declares to Babylon that far from being exalted, she will be brought down and trampled in the dust. And so she was. And so so to those who consider themselves wise in their own eyes, Jesus is saying, those who reject God and his Christ, then as we go out on missions and proclaim Jesus Christ, and as some respond and say, "I, I I don't 
need any of that nonsense. Get that out of here. God the Father is saying, I deliberately hide myself from you. And God the Son rejoices, praising God for hiding himself from those who are proud in their understanding. Now this idea of God hiding things from the wise and revealing them to uh, little children is, is actually a theme that runs all through Luke's gospel. Sometimes he uses different language to talk about the same, uh, the same theme. Sometimes he uses the language of power and weakness, sometimes of pride and humility, and other times riches and poverty. This is such a prevalent theme in Luke's gospel that people who have studied this have actually put a name to it. They call it the, the great reversal or the, the divine reversal that we find in Luke's gospel. And Jesus rejoices in it. God the Father turns the standards of this world upside down. And throughout Luke's gospel, there is this theme of joy because God sovereignly humbles the proud and exalts the lowly because he hides himself from the arrogant and reveals himself to the humble. One place we see this great reversal is in Mary's Magnificat. We looked at it a long time ago. You know, it sets this theme up for the entire gospel. Listen, listen to what Mary says. My soul rejoices. There's the joy. In God my Savior, because he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. There's the reversal. So my friends, here is something, here is something to thank God for. He deliberately hides himself from worldly wisdom. He deliberately hides himself from the supposedly wise and understanding. He will not be found out by those who arrogantly demand that God meet their criteria. Maybe you're asking the question, why is Jesus thankful for that? Imagine, imagine a church with me. Just This is hopefully something you have to imagine because it's not something you've experienced. Imagine a church made up of people who by their own wisdom and understanding have worked God out. Right? They, 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 through, through their own abilities, through their own reason, they figured them out. Imagine people who, have believed, who believe in the depths of their hearts I don't really need God. I don't really need his grace. I don't really need him to come to me and reveal himself to me. I don't need God to know God. I can do it myself. Hopefully, as you hear that, you think, that's appalling. And my friends, the good news is that's not the kind of church Jesus is building. And praise God for that. You see, the church is not a gathering of self-sufficient, pat-yourself-on-the-back boasters. It is a gathering of helpless, needy sinners looking for grace. And so God will not allow himself to be understood by the proud. He will not be discovered by the arrogant of this world. 
He deliberately, Jesus is saying, he deliberately hides himself from those who are wise in their own eyes. And this is part of God's sovereign and gracious will, and it's part of God's judgment on human self-sufficiency. God hides things from the arrogant, and Jesus thanks him for that. Now, I think this is, I think this is really important for us and how we think about missions. Because it tells us that even in the face of opposition, even in the face of apparent failure and rejection, that we actually have grounds to rejoice in the work of missions. Now, we need to, we need to be careful here. We need to be like Jesus in other ways, or we are going to distort this passage. And so with Jesus, our our hearts should break in the face of unbelief. Like Jesus, we should, we should see proud unbelief and, and, and weep that people condemn themselves to perishing in their own ways. And yet this passage is telling us at the same time from God's perspective, it's also a cause for thanksgiving. You see, we tend... We tend to see or look at an unbeliever who is kind of shaking their fist at God. And they're saying, we're asking ourselves, actually, has God failed? Is God impotent? Is God unable to save that person? We might ask ourselves, not at all, Jesus is saying. The Father has hidden himself from the proud. He will not allow himself to be understood by the arrogant. And it is part of his judgment on the wisdom of this world. So what a warning. What a warning this is against pride. And in context, Jesus, of course, is talking about religious people. He's talking about the religious establishment that Harden their hearts against the offer of God's grace in Christ. God hates pride. So I think this passage is saying to us, first of all, don't don't think you're self-sufficient. Don't think that you can work God out. Don't think that you can understand God or the gospel without God's grace in your life. Just this week I had to uh, I had to purchase a book for, for a class that I hope to take, and many of you will know the name. It's a book by Richard Dawkins, and the book is called The God Delusion. And uh, it's, uh, it's, of course, a New York Times best-selling book. Just about any book he writes these days is. And in that book, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins makes the point that it is almost absolutely certain that God does not exist. And... Uh, you know, I can explain with evolution why the idea of God exists. It's because people uh, needed a reason to explain their existence and reality. But now we, have, you know, now we have science and we no longer need that nonsense. Right? We, can, we can put the spaghetti monster away in the closet. He says things like that. And, and you've got to ask yourself the question as you think about that, my friends, is... Is God threatened by any of that? Is God threatened by Richard Dawkins and his pompous arrogance? Not at all. Not at all. This passage is telling us 
He has hidden himself from the Richard Dawkinses of this world. There's a second group in, in verse 21, and God graciously reveals himself to them. Look at verse 21 again with me. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So who are these little children? Let's flip forward in our Bibles. Go to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 16, and I think this verse sheds some light on who Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Luke 18, verse 16, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, that whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Now, the point here is not that in order to know God and follow Jesus, you have to be young, nor is the point that in order to know God and follow Jesus, you have to be infantile in your thinking. Okay, that's, get that out of the way. The point is that Jesus welcomes those who come to him utterly dependent. Notice, notice the contrast in, in, in Luke's gospel. The religious establishment... <laughs> approached Jesus with their prideful questions, trying to trip Jesus up, trying to find Jesus out, trying to prove him wrong. But the little children approached Jesus with simple trust. And the lesson, lesson, I think, is this. God hides himself from the proud and graciously reveals himself to the humble. So the language used in Luke chapter 10 Back in Luke chapter 10 is actually the language for little babies, uh, like, like Emma, our youngest, helpless, unable to do anything for herself, completely dependent, nothing to offer Jesus. And Jesus says, God reveals himself to such as these. See what Jesus is rejoicing in when you put these things together. While God the Father hides himself from the proud, the Father also graciously reveals himself to those who go to him as hopeless, helpless little children. And we ought to rejoice. We ought to rejoice that God works that way because becoming a child in the kingdom of God, my friends, it's not like being accepted into a prestigious university. You, know, you don't get in based on your performance or your abilities. You don't, you don't get in based on your transcript. You don't get in based on your IQ. You, you enter when you say, I'm a helpless, needy sinner. I, I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve to know you. Have mercy on me, O God. And so anyone who seeks God with a humble heart... God the Father graciously reveals himself to them because such is his gracious will. You need to keep that in mind in a moment when we talk about election. Because the Bible never separates human responsibility from divine election. We'll come back to that here in just a few minutes. As we think about this though, God hiding himself from the proud and revealing himself to the humble, I hope, I hope that makes you want to rejoice. 
The kingdom of God is hidden from the, the wisdom of this world. The gospel is veiled from those who are wise in their own eyes. And my friends, you don't have to be learned to enter the kingdom of Christ. You just simply need to go to him in simple trust and faith. So here is the first lesson Jesus, or the first reason Jesus rejoices. And if we share his perspective, we can rejoice too. The father's deliberate discrimination in hiding himself from the proud and revealing himself to the humble. My friends, the gospel is not thwarted by the wisdom of this world. God thwarts the wisdom of this world and shows his grace to the lowly. But there's a second reason Jesus rejoices here. I alluded to it just a moment ago. He rejoices because through missions, God's purpose in election is realized. Another way of putting it is in missions, as we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, what is Jesus doing? He is revealing God the Father to the nations. I want us to recognize, I want to talk about election, but I need to recognize that I know some, for some of us, we hear the word election and it's like the sound of nails on a, on a chalkboard. And I think at least part of the reason for that is because we have been taught by our culture to think that we're free. Now, there are freedoms that you and I have and, and, and freedoms that we ought to rejoice in. Freedom of religion. Freedom that we have as citizens of this country that we should be deeply, deeply grateful for. I'm talking about a different kind of freedom, though. And people, our culture has trained us to swallow this myth, hook, line, and sinker. So we have this idea that we can really do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And what's the ethic of our age? I mean, really, the only stipulation is you're absolutely free to choose and do whatever you want so long as you do not impinge upon the freedom of another or bring harm to someone else. But I want to say to you, dear friends, but when you really think about that notion of freedom, it's utterly ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous. I mean, think about it for a minute with me. Temporally, you're not free. You made no decision about when you would come into this world and you will really not have control of when you go from this world. Uh, you're not free in terms of your actions. Go and do whatever you want for a week and come back to me and tell me how that, how that turned out for you. You're not free financially. You can't just go and spend your money however you please on whatever you want without ramifications. And my friends, here's what I want to say to you today is you are definitely not free in this area, knowing God. We are not free in this area of knowing God. You're not privy to the knowledge of God. You're not able to re reason yourself to the knowledge of God unless God first reveals himself to you. In other words, you can't know God unless God makes himself known. With those things in mind, look at verse 22. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. 
And do you hear what Jesus is saying? No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. It's, a, it's an exclusive statement. And Jesus says, unless, of course, the Son reveals the Father. And look at what he says. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now let's unpack this, this verse together. It's, it's a tight verse. All things have been handed by God the Father to God the Son. That, that's great commission language, isn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And notice the exclusive statement. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. In other words, no one knows God but God. But notice, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When I, was, uh, when I was younger, I, uh, I had a tree frog for a pet. Actually, um, it was my aunt's, but I liked it so much, I just considered it my own. And we were over there all the time, so uh, anytime I was at her house, this tree frog was suction cup to my arm. And, uh, and I thought it, was, thought it was pretty neat. So that, that frog didn't know Jared, right? frog didn't know who I, who I am, what I am, what I'm thinking. There's no way of that frog understanding me because it's just a frog, <laughs> right? You see what I'm getting at here? There's this distance, qualitative difference between what I am and what that frog is. And you see, when it comes between God the creator and me the creature, there is an infinite distinction between God and myself, and there's no way for me to actually know or understand anything about God unless, unless God chooses to reveal himself to us. And my friends, what is, what is the good news of the gospel? But that God the Father sent his one and only Son to to take on our humanity and to reveal himself to his people. See, God condescends. God, in, in terms of, you know, Calvin used to put it this way, God babbles and speaks baby talk to us to, to make himself known. And so, my friends, all things, this verse is saying, all things have been handed over to Christ by the Father, and Christ is the way we come to know the Father. There is nothing necessary to be known about God and how to be in a relationship with God that is not revealed through Jesus Christ. And Jesus chooses, this verse says, Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to whomsoever he wills. And that is great cause for rejoicing. Now what's, you know, why, someone will say. Why is that cause for rejoicing? Because it puts God in his proper place, doesn't it? And it puts us in our proper place. In missions, God is enthroned in absolute authority and power. The gospel will not be thwarted by prideful arrogance and the gospel will be revealed and embraced by whomsoever Jesus 
reveals it to. That's what this passage is saying to us. It puts God in his proper place. And my friends, it puts little you and little me in our proper place. Utterly dependent on God, including, including salvation. Well, somebody will say, this is, this is horribly unfair. Right? Maybe, you've, maybe you've thought that. I've thought that. This is horribly unfair. But my friends, if the Bible's teaching about sin is true, which it is, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all have gone astray, each to his own way, all have rebelled against God, then my friends, fairness is actually the very last thing we should be pleading for. What we need is grace, right? Sovereign, unmerited grace. Somebody else might say, uh, well, election reduces humanity to puppets on a string. If what Jesus is rejoicing in here is true, we're we're really just pre-programmed robots and nothing really matters. But my friends, the Bible never, ever gives us that impression, does it? Again, we cannot separate verse 21 from verse 22. The Bible never separates or sets in contrast human responsibility from divine sovereignty. And verse 21 tells us that God hides himself from the proud and arrogant and he reveals himself to little children. And then verse 22 tells us all about God's sovereign election. There's another uh, objection someone might make. If God is sovereign, and here's where we, we really get to what we've been focusing on these past few weeks. If God is sovereign, you've been talking about missions. Why on, why on earth should I care about missions if election is true? Right? If they're elect, they're elect. What will be, what will be, and they will be saved no matter what I do. So I have no responsibility. You see, you've just crushed any motive that believers might have for engaging in missions. And let me just say, just say that to Jesus. Say that to Jesus. Because here we are in Luke chapter 10. It's all about missions. And now it's telling us how Christ gathers the elect and gathers the nations to himself. Gathers his people to himself by sending his disciples out into the world to proclaim His victory over Satan, sin, and death. Inviting sinners into a relationship with the Father through through the forgiveness of sins that is offered to each of us in the gospel. So my friends, missions is the means for the realization of God's purposes in election. Once again, we can't separate God's complete sovereignty from human responsibility. And God has laid a responsibility upon us, dear brothers and sisters. And put it this way, God's sovereignty does not douse the flame of missions. It actually, it actually pours gasoline on it so that our, our, our passion, our passion ought to be to go into the highways and byways and proclaim the sovereign name of Jesus Christ. And so as we engage in missions, we, we have reasons to rejoice because God hides himself from the proud and reveals himself to the humble. And we rejoice because as the gospel is proclaimed, 
Jesus is sovereignly bringing people into fellowship with the Father. And so in this glorious, glorious passage on missions, Jesus is calling us as as a church to take up this work. As we've been saying, it is a fundamental part of our mission as a church. We exist to bring glory to God, and one way we do that is through the work of missions. And here's what I want to say to us today. When we do, here's what the result will be. Deep, real, everlasting, Jesus-like joy. Lots of things in life that give us joy, aren't there? But often they're fleeting joys. Here's something that gives eternal joy. As God calls us, and isn't it, it's an incredible thought. Why would God use us, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, to accomplish his purposes? And yet that's what he does. And Jesus invites us into the joy of mission so that whatever the outcome, even if it's rejection and opposition and even persecution, we can rejoice because God hides himself from the proud and he reveals himself to little children. Praise God for that. And in missions... God reveals himself, and my friends, Jesus Christ is enthroned at the center of it all, right where he belongs. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you that through through Jesus, you sovereignly reveal yourself to your people. And Lord, we thank you today, and we rejoice that you Reveal yourself to little children when we come to you, dependent upon you, for such is your gracious will. Lord Jesus, as we come to the Lord's table in a moment, we pray that you would meet us there and fellowship with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.